Well, amen. You know, of course, today is uh, Palm Sunday, which makes next week Easter Sunday. And uh, I would invite you to invite others with you, with you to church next Sunday. And uh, had a uh, uh, an encounter one time uh, a few years ago at another church where it was an Easter Sunday. The crowd was bigger than normal. And uh, this one guy had been a Christian a long time. He came up to me and he said, Pastor, I hope you really give it to those people that only show up on Easter. And I looked at him and I said, well, I could just be happy they're here. And, uh, and so I got up on, uh, on the stage and I welcomed everybody and I said, if, if you haven't been to church here in a long time, we're glad you're here. Next week there might be some people that don't come to church very often. And uh, just make sure you're glad they're here, okay? Uh, God loves all of us. And wherever we are on our journey with Him, uh, he, we're no better. The most faithful one of us is no better than anyone else. At the cross, the ground is level. And Jesus died for us all. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're going to uh, go back, if you will, with me and sort of review a little bit of the book of Romans to this point. Uh, I want to get some little bit of perspective for today's message. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. And uh, to get a bigger picture of what Paul has been talking about in the book of Romans, he essentially says this, that number one, God's displeasure with sin is not hidden from us. God makes his wrath, his displeasure with sin known to us. And it's been revealed to us. And this is sort of like getting a diagnosis of a serious medical condition. You don't like it. It's not a fun message you need to hear, but it is a message you probably need to hear if you're going to somehow inject a cure into your life. And so at least now you know the reality of the situation. And we know that there is a God. He's revealed himself in creation, Paul says. He's revealed himself in our hearts. And we know that this God is holy. We know that he is just. We know that his standards are perfect. And so every one of us has a knowledge of God, even if we want to sort of push it aside or deny it. We see God's works in creation. We have this internal instinctive knowledge of God within our own hearts. You don't have to teach a child to have faith in God. Children know. Children know that there's a God. It's only adults who have to be convinced to be atheists. And so... It should cause us, this knowledge of God, should cause us to be grateful because God's given us life. God's given us everything. God is good. We see this just in creation. That we have this life, we have everything that we have from God, and it ought to cause us to respond to God with gratitude and to seek out after Him and to try to yearn for Him and look for Him. But that's not what we do, is it? We have a tendency to turn away from God and sort of do our own thing and maybe ignore God. And we pursue selfishness. 
And we even take the ways that God has made us from the very beginning, and we twist it to the point that we might even, uh, Paul says in Romans 1, engage in sin that, that we should not engage in. And so what God does is, out of his mercy, he turns us over to our sin. And you might say, well, how is that an act of mercy? Because, as we'll learn later in the book of Romans, God corrals us in our sin. Just like at the rodeo, you have a corral, and you might have a wild animal, a horse or something like that, but it's in the pen. There's a limit to the amount of damage that wild animal might do because it's been corralled. And so that's what essentially God does to us. He corrals us up in our sin so that we limit the damage and, and nevertheless we, we begin to uh, act on our sin and we go further and further spiraling down into more and more depravity. But God hasn't given up on us. He's showing mercy to us until we eventually get to the point where, where we come to this realization. My life is killing me. I hate this. I can't live this way anymore. And perhaps we might cry out to God and look to Him for mercy. And so that's the net result of God giving us over to our sin. It is so we can slowly experience the consequences of sin. We slowly experience spiritual death until hopefully we wake up before it's too late. And so Paul talks about all of this in Romans 1, and, and he does it in third person, and you think he's talking about other people. And then in, you get to Romans 2, and just when you think, yeah, Paul, give it to those nasty people. They're all rotten. Give it to, you know, just sock it to them. Like that guy who wanted me to give it to the people on Easter. Just when you think, that Paul's talking about other people, he changes to second person in Romans 2. And he says, you are no better. You self-righteous people who judge others for their depravity, judge others for their sin, and then you do the same thing they do. You're no better. And so we find that we ourselves, if we're the ones that you know might tend to judge other people, are also under God's judgment, for there's no partiality with God. And so it, it doesn't matter if you're part of the chosen people of God, if you're a Jew, or it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter what kind of a community of faith that you might believe in. We're all guilty of disobeying God's law. And so what does it mean then to be a Jew? To be part of God's chosen people? Isn't this special group that God chose so many thousands of years ago, doesn't that give them some type of protection? No, not necessarily. It does mean that they've been given God's word, that God gave the Ten Commandments to the Jews. God gave His other commandments to the Jews. And the Jews were supposed to share God's word. They were to share God's law with the rest of humanity so that all of humanity would know God's perfect uh, statutes. They were to be a nation of priests calling upon the entire world to come to God in faith. But that didn't happen very well. And so we discover that Jews as well as non-Jews, Gentiles, 
We're all in the same spiritual condition. We're all under sin. But then Jews began to have this status problem. They began to think of themselves as super special. You know, like a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians think of themselves as, you know, well, I'm just up here. And those non-Christians are down here. Well, that's the way the Jews were feeling about themselves, generally. They basically said, we have a special place in God's heart. We have achieved a position that no Gentile can ever achieve because God has chosen us. And it's this type of spiritual or religious boasting that needs to be addressed today. Take your Bible again, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. And I would ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. It'll appear, the words will appear on the screen behind me. And I'll read out loud, and you can just read silently. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Scripture says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by, uh, through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of this brief passage of Scripture so that we might be changed today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, in verse 27, Paul says, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Real simple here. Paul says that if you're a Jew and you're part of God's chosen people, you might think that that's a special status. However, there's no room to boast in that. Because we're all guilty before God, there's no room to boast. In fact, today if you're a Christian, there's no room to boast in that either. God has saved you. You didn't do anything. God did it. Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't your plan. It wasn't your actions. God did the whole thing. All you simply did is say, okay, yes, thank you. I accept. I receive. That's all you did. So there's no room for boasting unless you're boasting in God. Verse 27 continues, by what kind of law of works? But No, but by law of faith. You see, Paul's still talking about the Jews here, and, and he's saying that God always intended Israel to be a light to draw the rest of the nations, the rest of the world, to him. But that's not what happened. Instead of being faithful to God, Israel began to adopt the habits and the wickedness of their Gentile neighbors. And then Israel looked at the problem and they said, you know what, we're becoming just like the Gentiles. We're supposed to be different from the Gentiles but we're starting to act just like the Gentiles. We're engaging in child sacrifice, just like the Gentiles, our neighbors are doing, which is a horrible sin, as you can imagine. We're engaging in all kinds of wickedness. We're starting to worship other gods. 
We shouldn't do these things. And so Israel made it worse. Instead of just simply correcting their behavior and becoming a light to the Gentiles, they completely withdrew themselves from the Gentiles altogether. And they basically said, look, when we become friends with the Gentiles, we start to act like the Gentiles. So let's isolate ourselves from the Gentiles so we can maintain our faithfulness to God. Well, it sounds logical. I mean, it's sort of like what Christian monks do. They go off into their monastery and uh, they can live a life of faithfulness to God, but what good is that if they're not good Christian witnesses? That's what Israel was doing. And so the problem is that God wanted His chosen people, Israel, to be on mission to the Gentiles, but they forsook that mission. Do you remember the story of Jonah? The story of Jonah is one of my favorite stories. Not just because it's got a big fish that swallowed a guy. That's fun. But do you remember the story of Jonah? God said to Jonah the prophet, I want you to leave my people. I want you to go to that nation that is oppressing you. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Babylon. Today we'd say, I want you to go to Iraq. And even though you're a stranger there, I want you to tell that city that they must repent, turn away from their sin, stop doing wickedness, and believe in me, or else I will destroy them. Jonah said, essentially, are you crazy? I'm not going to them. They're the enemy. I'm not going to be on mission for you, God. You want me to go east? Guess where I'm going? I'm going west. So he hopped on a ship, headed to, to a, a place called Tarshish, which was, some people say, in Spain. He started heading to Tarshish. When a storm came, things got bad. He eventually said, sorry guys, it's my fault. My God is displeased with me. I'm running from him. He said, just toss me overboard and the storm will stop. They didn't want to do it, but they eventually ceded to his plan, tossed him overboard, and the storm stopped. These sailors were okay. By the way, the sailors, before they tossed them overboard, they all prayed to their gods. Jonah did not pray to his. Jonah was in a bad place spiritually. Jonah's in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. Great whale comes along, swallows him. The whale is not punishment. The whale is transportation. The whale makes its way eventually, to the shore, vomits him back, back up onto the shore, where Jonah, covered in whale vomit, decides, okay, God, I will begrudgingly go where you want me to go. He makes his way to Nineveh, and he basically says, God will judge you, God will judge you, God will judge you. And then he leaves. And he waits on a hill, 
for God to destroy the city. And yet, God does not destroy the city because they repented from their ways. And then you get to the key part of the book of Jonah. The most important part. And it's a lesson we can learn today. In Jonah chapter 4, it says, But it greatly displeased Jonah. What did? That God showed mercy to lost people. It greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah's really upset with God. Because through Jonah, God saved Israel's enemies. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Verse 6, I love this part. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and the plant withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry? About the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Jonah is a message to Israel, a nation that had forsaken their mission. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can come to the point, just like Jonah, where we somehow think that because we are Christians and because we've been a Christian so long that somehow we've achieved a status that is special and we have no compassion for the lost person that Jesus died on the cross to save just as much as he died on the cross to save us. We must never lose our compassion for the lost. It is so easy when you th think that you have your life together to look down upon others that might have their life in shambles. We must never do that. We must always have compassion 
We must always be on mission to people who need to know God. First John tells us not to love the world. Does that mean that we separate ourselves from any contact with lost people? Does it mean we forsake our duty of, of serving as God's ambassadors? Of course not. Verse 28 in Romans uh, chapter 3 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, salvation is possible and it is available to everyone. All you have to do is have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be justified. To be justified means that God declares you as judge, God declares you innocent of the crimes, the spiritual sins that you've committed. And it also means that once you receive Christ, He begins to transform your life day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. And if salvation were only available to the chosen people of God, then God would be the God of the Jews only. But He's not. God is the God of the Gentiles. Let me put this in today's terms. God is the God of the Democrats. And not just the Republicans. Now you get a feeling of the type of angst between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. It is that same feeling, that same type of angst that we have toward one another politically. But God is the God of all people. All people. Verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Circumcision again is supposed to be the outward sign of a Jewish man's inward faith in God. But circumcision, that outward religious sign, it has no bearing on God's love for you. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter what people group you belong to. God's salvation, God's grace, God's forgiveness is available to all people. And so it brings up another question. If people can get saved without keeping the law of God, if they can get saved through faith, then what's the point of God's law? Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law of God through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish the law. You see, faith puts law in its proper place. Why did God give the Ten Commands? If you were to say to me, God gave people the Ten Commands, Commandments in order to save them so that they could somehow achieve the Ten Commandments and be saved, I would say that's wrong. God's commandments were never given to us so that we could earn salvation by keeping them. God's commands, the law of God, were given to us to show us how perfect and holy God's standards are. And when we look at the law of God, when we look at the perfection of God's commandments, and we look at ourselves, we see that we fall terribly short. You could go step by step through the commandments of God, and if you understand those commandments of God as heart conditions, as Jesus taught us, then you would understand that you've probably broken every single one of them. You're guilty of them all. And so by looking at God's law, we should call out to God for mercy and we should say, God, I have broken your law. I can't hide it. I've broken your law. 
I need your mercy. Because there's nothing that I can do to make myself acceptable in your sight. Please forgive me. I place my faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I ask you out of mercy to receive me as your child. Is that your prayer? Is that your wish today?